Welcome to the Hava podcast. I am Dr. Andreas Eppelt, your host, and today we're going to talk about health, fitness, nutrition, weight loss, all of those things, together with possibly the most interesting guest you could have on this topic. His name is Dr. Ted Neiman. He is a medical doctor. He's been working with patients regarding this for a long, long time, patients with obesity, diabetes, etc. He's been obsessing over nutrition science. He knows more than pretty much anybody I know. On top of everything else, he's also a trained engineer. He codes, he builds tech prototypes. I don't know anybody else, any other doctor who does that. He's a brilliant guy, a Renaissance man. And uh, full disclosure, we've been working together for a couple of years to build something that I think is really interesting and exciting. Without further ado, Here's the podcast. Ted Neyman, welcome to the Hava podcast. You're actually our first guest. Pretty exciting. Yay. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to be talking to you. And it's been great to work with you for the past uh, year or so. It's been amazing. Yeah. Uh, and there's so much to talk about. Exciting things coming up. Uh, maybe for, for people who don't know you, you could just share a little bit about your background. Uh, it's quite an interesting story, I think. Oh, well, sure. Thank you. Absolutely. Right. So uh, um, I'm a primary care doctor here um, in the U.S. near Seattle, and I got out of residency in 2000. So I'm super old, but I do have a lot of experience. I've been doing primary care medicine now for about 23 years. Um, I uh, work for just a hospital-based um, medical center here in Seattle, and uh, I just do standard primary care. So pretty much anybody with anything, anytime. Um, I started out with an engineering degree in undergrad, mechanical engineering, and thought I wanted to work in aerospace, but couldn't get a job. So I kind of went back to medical school on a whim. And uh, then I ended up doing primary care just because I couldn't decide what I liked the most. So I wanted to do a little bit of everything. Uh, but the whole time I've had a career in medicine, I've been really fascinated with diet and exercise and the differences between the super healthy clients or patients I was seeing and the super unhealthy ones. And I realized pretty early on that diet and exercise was just this huge factor for almost every chronic disease that I was seeing in practice. And so I've really spent the past 20 years or so just researching diet and exercise um, and their effects on health and basically just trying to optimize and also looking at the, the practical side of diet and exercise. Like, you know, what are the biggest rocks in the jar and what are the things that uh, are most important, you know, versus least important. And so I've just really been trying to apply that in primary care for a couple of decades. And yeah, and then here I am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And since you've been uh, doing this now for decades and reading about it and talking to experts and, and testing things, what is the best diet? <laughs> Right. So now, while there's probably um, a lot of different directions you can go with diet, there is a basic template that I think would apply to most people most of the time. Like if I, um, you know, was abducted by aliens from another galaxy and they um, put me in charge of their human zoo where they had lots of humans in an enclosure or whatever, and they had to just provide a diet to these humans in general, like, okay, you're... Um, you know, you're in the intergalactic zoo and you're in charge of caring for the humans and you just have to give them all a stock diet, just like the lions or the tigers or the zebras in, in a zoo here. I do think there are some 
basic dietary principles that would give you a pretty good phenotype in most humans most of the time. And it really is a combination of um, optimizing the nutrient density of the diet, which is basically protein, vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, uh, versus caloric content, which is pretty much just carbs and fats. And so the optimum diet for humans would have a certain protein percentage and a certain energy density and a certain combination of nutritional density, which is protein and micronutrients, to caloric density, which is carbs and fats. And so you could actually provide a basic diet template that would get most people you know, to a pretty good state of health most of the time. And that would be great for your intergalactic zoo human exhibit, uh, you know, if you know what I mean. Um, and so I do think there are some basic strategies that work for most people. However, like humans are uh, amazingly adaptable. We're basically survival machines and we can live in almost any location on earth, eating almost anything. And this ability to adapt and hit the extremes of like high protein, low protein, carbs versus fats, you know, 100% and 0%, our ability to do that um, does kind of make it look like there's a lot of different options. And in fact, there are. And there's always personal preference. Everyone's an individual. But we're all kind of pretty similar genetically. And so there is this kind of basic template that I think works for most people. Um, as for, you know, what's the very best diet? Well, it kind of depends on your, your goals. It kind of depends on what your objective is. If you're trying to run uh, you know, an ultra marathon, if you're running a marathon every day for a year or some insane thing like that, the optimum diet for you is going to be way higher energy density. It's going to have a lot more calories, uh, be a lot easier to digest. It's going to have a bunch of empty calories because you just really need that um, versus someone who's, you know, extremely sedentary. Maybe they cannot exercise at all. Maybe they're uh, literally quadriplegic or have some major uh, mobility problem, their diet is going to look very, very different. It's going to have a lot lower energy density. It's going to have a lot lower calories. And so there there are individual differences that you have to take into account. And that's part of why there's no like, you know, optimum diet for, for everyone. But I do think there are right. some principles that apply to everyone. Right. Uh, I, I think you, just to, to, to take this to to what a lot of people may be thinking is this sounds very complicated, right? And I, I think that uh, today it is complicated for most people. Like, what are you going to eat? Uh, there are all kinds of ideas. You should eat low carb, vegan. You should avoid ultra processed foods or you should uh, do something completely different. Uh, maybe you should just count your calories. Uh, maybe you should just eat real food. I do think that a lot of people are struggling to know really what matters and you know what's doable for them and uh, of course that's connected to what we're what we're building towards but what's your take on that you know <clears throat> the idea that a lot of people are struggling today it's just hard and how do you make it less hard right i mean i used to be easy so it used to be uh yeah, you know, when you're a hunter-gatherer, you just basically get any plant or animal you can that's non-toxic and you eat that. And it's just like kill an animal, eat the whole thing, find a plant that's less toxic than the others and try to eat that. And you just ate what you got. You just ate what was in your environment. And uh, most animals on Earth do not get to choose their food. They're basically just eating whatever they can get and they're lucky to get it. 
And so humans are unique because not only do we make all of our foods, you know, uh, we've basically just created all these foods, but we also get to choose what we want to eat. Every time we eat, we have an infinite array of choices. Um, you know, thanks to Uber eats, I have an infinite array of things I can eat. How uh, most of them have been invented by humans, created by humans, and I can literally choose any one of those. And it's this, uh, infinite amount of choice that really makes it super complicated. You know, if you just walked outside with a loincloth and a spear, it would be pretty easy. Well, it'd be hard, but it would be easy to know what to eat. You would just eat whatever you had. And that's so what's kind the problem of, with uh, all that choice then? The choice is right? good, right? Choice is good. The problem is we've literally created these foods that are just 10 out of 10, amazing, delicious, spectacular. And that's what every single time people are choosing a food, they're just choosing the most delicious, amazing thing you've ever heard of. We're basically eating dessert for breakfast, dessert for lunch, dessert for dinner, dessert for dessert, and dessert for snacks. And we've created these foods that have this bliss point of high energy density, high carb, high fat, high salt, high sugar, spectacular um, tasting, very brain rewarding, but um, with horrific uh, ratio of nutritional density to energy density. And it's no wonder we have an obesity epidemic. And I think it's that food choice that's really, really difficult. It's like, I have every food imaginable right here right now all the time and i have to choose something and that i think that's what's really really tricky like people have no idea what to eat you can live on almost anything we have everything it's all delicious and amazing and nobody really knows what to eat and then of course you know the epidemiology makes it really really kind of murky it's like maybe it should just be plants only you know maybe uh uh maybe it should just be meat maybe plants are all trying to kill you, you know, and then it's like, well, carbs are bad. Okay. We know carbs are bad, but then fat is bad. And, uh, I think there's just so much information out there and everybody's right a little bit. And the combination of all these things just basically makes it really, really difficult. So, uh, just to go back to what, why does this stuff matter? Because, you know, okay, you have a lot of delicious foods, uh, you eat a lot of them. Maybe you become obese. Why? Why does that matter? Why should Why should I care? Oh, why should you care about obesity? You know, why should you care if you're obese or not? Right, right. So the problem is uh, all of your mountain of chronic degenerative diseases that uh, uh, basically accompany obesity, or more specifically, insulin resistance of overfatness. So once somebody is overfat, where they've basically filled up their storage depots, their fat cells, and their muscle and their liver storage, you get insulin resistant and um, insulin resistance gets progressively worse as you're over fat. The final end stage of that is diabetes. But even if you never develop uh, type two diabetes, you're going to have a ton of chronic degenerative diseases driven by the insulin resistance of over fatness, which is plain and simple, just too many calories like excess calorie balance. So if you're chronically eating too many calories, and you run out of easy storage space in your body, this insulin resistance will drive all of your chronic degenerative diseases forward. You'll basically have cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, cancer, all of the major chronic degenerative stuff that we're seeing in primary care day in and day out. And also a lot of the minor 
um, diseases that we see, you know, like arthritis and acid reflux and um, psoriasis and all these other autoimmune conditions that are driven forward by insulin resistance. So it's not just weighing too much. It's literally causing a mountain, a tsunami of chronic degenerative diseases. And so this is a huge big deal. And we're literally facing the biggest epidemic humans have ever had in the form of this global obesity and overfatness and insulin resistance. And a huge portion of it is really just food choice. I mean, if you look at the the food choices made by like a aesthetic athlete, a bodybuilder or a fitness model or something versus the food choice of someone who's just eating what tastes good, like three times a day and then some snacks, uh, you're going to get this just radically different outcome in terms of phenotype and overall health and um, disease risk. And it's just a really, really big deal. It's probably the biggest deal you can get on a global stage right now. In terms so, of human I mean, you're a, you're a primary care doctor. You see patients every day. Um, how common are these health problems? <laughs> it's, it's extraordinarily common. So, you know, like right now, 52% of adult Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic. So that's everyone. So everyone who walks in the door, is, not everyone, but the majority are pre-diabetic or diabetic. The majority of these people have some amount of fatty liver. They have some amount of insulin resistance. They have some amount of high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, all the problems of metabolic syndrome. And then that's driving forward all of these chronic diseases that, you know, primary care sees these diseases that you basically can never cure and you have to take medication for life. And that's, you know, high blood pressure and high cholesterol or dyslipidemia, uh, you know, abnormal lipids and all of these <clears throat> cardiovascular diseases and, and mm. it really is consequence so, of diet. So based on your uh, uh, expertise and, and what you see, uh, what percentage of people would you guess get problems like this during their lifetime? You know, maybe we can avoid it when we're young. Some people get it when they're older. You know, what percentage of people in the U.S. do you think get any sort of health problems from this during their lifetime? Right. Probably 90%. So we know that it's uh, about 92% of Americans are overfat. And that means they have some amount of insulin resistance. And this, that's just a snapshot prevalence nationwide. But over your lifetime, as people get older, they get more and more insulin resistant. They get more sedentary. They have less muscle. They have less storage for energy macronutrients. And they just get more and more insulin resistant with age. So eventually, uh, almost everyone is going to have some sort of issue with these problems. Not so that's 100%. pretty depressing, you know, all these kind of health problems and, and it, it uh, affects most people in the US today, uh, or at least uh, it's likely to, as they grow older, they will get these problems too, most likely. So what do you see? And we discussed this is this is hard. It's hard to find a way to eat better if if the food is 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 the main problem behind it. Uh, do you see any success stories? Do you see any hope here? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do see uh, hope. I do see success. <clears throat> and you know, I just have a ton of patients who have figured this out. They uh, they figured out. Oh, hey, if I eat, if I choose mm -hmm. these foods. They're maybe not 10 out of 10 delicious. They're like seven out of 10, but they're good enough that I can do this long-term and I can sustain it. And I, 
all of a sudden my weight is just steadily going downhill instead of uphill. So most Americans are gaining about one pound per year and end up, you know, 30 pounds overweight. And that's just this chronic, slow, gradual trend where I see patients, you know, every year for a physical ed, every single year, their weight's at an all time high, just over and over and over and over and over again. But some people figure this out and they're like, oh, hey, if I just turn my food direction choices, I mean, my food choices in a different direction slightly, um, it's sustainable, it's enjoyable, it's not, you know, 10 out of 10 every time you eat. But my weight's like steadily going down instead of up. And so I absolutely see people making these changes, sometimes pretty small, uh, but in specific directions and then just steadily losing weight. And you can absolutely reverse this obesity trend, but you can't do it by eating the same foods you're eating before and then just trying to eat less of them. That is absolutely not going to work. So why not? Why not just eat less? I mean, you and I know it, but... uh... I guess some people may still be uh, thinking that just eat less seems easy. So basically every animal that has access to food eats to satiety, full stop. That's just how the system is wired. Uh, if you're an animal and you've got food, you eat till you're full, the end. And, and so every person with food is eating, sati- eating to satiety over and over and over again. And that's when they stop eating. And but some so, people say that they just uh, eat less and lose weight. Right. right. Now you can do that short term. So you can just white knuckle through an extended fast or a starvation diet or a, a hunger strike or just forcing yourself to eat less calories. But it, it's extraordinarily painful and miserable. And nobody can do that long term. That's absolutely not sustainable for anyone. You cannot just say, I'm just going to eat the same food I've seen before and just eat half the calories. You can do that for a month. You could do that for a couple of days. You can do that for a few weeks, but you're not going to be able to do that forever. What can you do forever then? Right. So what you can do forever is make some tiny little directional tweaks to your diet that improve the satiety per calorie. So you're still full. And you're just automatically eating less. And that's things like eating a little bit higher protein percentage when you choose your foods and a little bit higher fiber percentage and a little bit lower energy density. And so you're still getting protein and micronutrients and weight and volume of food and you're feeling full, but you didn't ingest quite as many calories. And some of these changes can be really, really small, uh, but have a, just a huge outcome. You know, the probably the lowest hanging fruit I can think of is switching from caloric beverages to non-caloric beverages. That's just absolutely huge. This is a pretty small change and it's a little bit less delicious. Like, okay, a regular Coke is slightly tastier than a Diet Coke, but the overall satiety is still pretty good. Like you're going to be able to sustain drinking a Diet Soda instead of regular soda long-term and your calorie intake is going to be significantly lower And you can steadily take someone who's gaining weight yearly to losing weight yearly just by little swaps like that. And it's literally higher satiety for fewer calories. This satiety per calorie is a new approach um, that maybe not everybody has heard about yet. I mean, of course, I'm uh, I'm sold on it. Um, I think it's the future. But uh, could you just uh, explain to the listener what what the hell is that? Satiety per calorie. It sounds complicated. Right. So, okay. Basically everyone's eating till they're full and your body expects certain things when you eat your, your 
when we're hunter gatherers, your body had to guess how many calories you were ingesting while you're eating so that you would stop eating even before you absorbed all the calories and all the nutrients. And you're kind of just guessing. And your body expects you to eat a couple of pounds of food a day. You're eating a certain weight and volume of food. You're doing a certain amount of chewing. You're uh, getting a certain amount of protein showing up in your bloodstream, amino acids. And so there are all these things that your body's expecting to help you guess when you've eaten enough food and when you can stop eating. And so satiety per calorie is this concept that as you're eating to satiety, uh, you're ingesting a certain amount of energy, calories, carbs, and fats, right? And so there are certain things you can do with your diet that are evidence-based to improve satiety per calories. In other words, you can get the same satiety for less calories. And these are things like a higher protein percentage and a uh, higher amount of fiber and uh, higher weight and volume to your food and lower energy density, which is like less refined carbs, less refined fats, less refined alcohol. And all of these things give you this fullness that your body's looking for uh, with slightly less calories. And uh, if you make these choices over and over again, you'll just steadily lose weight. And so this is kind of a global meta concept. Satiety per calories, like a, a, a giant meta concept that explains pretty much every single dietary success out there. Why somebody going vegan might lose a bunch of weight. Why someone going carnivore might lose a bunch of weight. Why somebody just counting calories or you know that sort of thing might lose weight as well. The satiety per calorie kind of encompasses every directional thing you could do with anyone's diet that allows them to feel full when they eat and eat to satiety and still be eating less calories than, than they were before. So um, this satiety per calorie model just looks at any tweaks you could make to your diet that would give you the same sense of fullness uh, for less calories. And that's kind of a magical thing. And it, it really, it kind of transcends any of these other issues that we've been talking about in the past, like carbs versus fat, plants versus animals, um, you know, things that might not really be that different. They might just be a lateral move, plants, to animals, or carbs to fats, if you know what I mean. It's pretty interesting because uh, uh, there are, of course, lots of uh, various diets out there with proponents um, recommending them and many people being successful on them. But then you have people doing kind of the opposite thing and also being successful. It's pretty confusing. Uh, you have people doing low carb all over the place and succeeding with that. But then you have other people on a high carb diet doing perhaps equally well. Like, how do you explain that? Right, For, yeah. It's... Uh, vegans versus carnivores is classic too, right? Uh, vegans are uh, convinced that they uh, have the the best approach and uh, carnivores are equally convinced that they are doing the right thing and both can be successful. Like, how do you explain that? Oh, well, it is. It's just absolutely terribly confusing. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's extremely confusing to a lot of people. There are these huge Facebook groups out there for vegan diets. Like I went vegan and I lost a trillion pounds and all my chronic diseases went away and I'm just so much healthier and like just amazing success stories. But for every one of those now, you've got a carnivore success story that's just as fervent and just as amazing and just as like transformative and life-changing. And, you know, what do you do with that when you can literally just, you know, scroll over to the vegan I lost 
billion pounds Facebook page. And then the carnivore, I lost a billion pounds Facebook page. I mean, what does anyone do that do with that? It's so confusing. It almost paralyzes you with like, you know, they, they can't both be, so how they can't do you both be that? right. The reality is everybody's right. Everybody's right. So when you go on a carnivore diet, you're instantly eating a much higher protein percent. So <clears throat> plants are sucking minerals out of the soil and they have some amino acids in them, right? So there's some protein in plants, but animals like a cow goes around and eats like, you know, a billion blades of grass, sucks all the protein out of those and concentrates it. So animals are basically concentrating protein. So just in general, when you eat an animal, you're automatically getting at least double the protein percentage of a plant pretty much across the board. So just in general, universally, plants are at a higher, I mean, uh, animals are at a higher trophic level than plants, which means they've bioaccumulated nutrients. They've bioaccumulated um, protein, they've bioaccumulated micronutrients, and you just automatically have a nutritional density that's higher. It's kind of like mercury and ocean fish, right? Your little ocean fish don't have much mercury in them, but a bigger fish eats a bunch of those fish, has a little higher mercury, and then some tuna comes along and eats those bigger fish, and so your giant fish has bioaccumulated mercury and it has more of it. Well, the same thing happens with protein and micronutrients. And as you go up the trophic ladder and you know get higher and higher predators, you get a higher concentration of protein and micronutrients. And that's why carnivore is an instant win. You're just automatically doubling the protein percent. But then what about like plants? So like the secret there is the energy density is super low. You have to eat, you know, so many um, Okinawan sweet potatoes just to be alive, you get an incredible amount of satiety from, from these tubers. The energy density is really low. The fiber is pretty high. Um, you will eventually get enough micronutrients and protein. Um, and so you're automatically going to be way thinner because the satiety per calorie is so high just from low energy density and high fiber. And so you can kind of see how like you can, it's like the, it's like the blind people looking at the elephant where, you know, one people, one person's feeling the trunk and one's feeling the ears and one's feeling the tail and uh, everybody's right. They're all right. They're all looking at it from different sides. And satiety per calorie is a way to kind of zoom way out and look at all of these from the 50,000 foot view where you're like, oh, I can totally see how carnivores and instant win from a protein and micronutrient point of view. But I can also totally see how plant-based is an instant win from a fiber and low energy density point of view. And you can actually combine these two together and be an omnivore, what? And get the best of both worlds. And that's, you know, while both of these extremes are possible, combining them in a really smart satiety calorie way is probably optimal. And that's, you know, I'm sure why humans are omnivores. But this, this concept basically kind of brings together a lot of warring factions of like low carb versus low fat. The reality is low fat is awesome and low carb is awesome. Both of these immediately improve satiety per calorie significantly. And you will see a million Facebook pages of just low fat dieting. Here's all the recipes we used. Here's all the weight we lost. Here's all the chronic diseases we reversed. Low fat is the best thing ever. And you can get the exact same mirror image, low carb stories, the exact same uh, success, the exact same um, anecdotes, all of the same things from either side. And then 
you just have to say, well, how could you ever possibly explain this? Oh, that's easy. Just transcend that to looking at it from a satiety per calorie lens, where these are just flip sides of the same coin. So briefly, if you look at the low carb versus low fat from a satiety lens, what do you see? Why, why can they both work? So it's very evidence-based that anytime you reduce the carbohydrate in a food, you've automatically improved satiety per calorie. So when you suck the carbs out of something, uh, the protein percent's automatically higher. The energy density is automatically lower. Um, if you leave, if you take out just the refined carbs and leave unrefined carbs, the fiber is going to be higher. The fiber per thousand calories is going to be much higher. Same thing happens on the fat side. As soon as you remove fat from a food, uh, protein percent is higher. Energy density is way lower. And both of these moves equally improve satiety per calorie. Well, you can actually do a little bit of both. And personally, I think it's easier to be a little bit low carb and a little bit low fat together rather than just trying to get the carbs all the way to zero or the fat all the way to zero. And uh, once you learn how to combine these two in a satiety per calorie mindset, uh, it unlocks uh, just a whole lot more possibilities and explains a whole lot more of the phenomenon you see in the diet space. Like all of a sudden everything makes sense. You can kind of see the ones and zeros in the matrix once <laughs> you have this way become of looking the, at it. Become Neo in the matrix, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so another thing that's really popular these days is uh, hating on ultra processed foods, which may have some merit. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, is it all about the processing? How does that fit into this whole thing? If you avoid processed foods, aren't you going to be much healthier and thinner and all that stuff? Well, okay. For, if if you just glance at ultra processed foods from a, like a first order approximation, it's true. Ultra processed foods are bad and worse than unprocessed foods. And this could be very, very simple as just as simple as feeding one group of rats rat chow. And feeding another group of rats, the same rat chow that you've mechanically pulverized into a fine powder and mixed with water into a little paste or something. The rats eating the pulverized, blenderized, Vitamix, you know, ninja blender rat chow are actually going to gain more weight than the unprocessed chow. Because when you have an unprocessed food with a harder surface texture, you have to do more chewing. That gives you more satiety per calorie takes a lot longer to digest in your stomach and your small intestine that gives you higher satiety per calorie. You're basically going to feel more full than uh, if your food is, you can just drink it all through a straw or something that's just super processed. So first of all, just mechanically processing something. Yes, the caloric availability is higher. You could gain more weight on it. The other thing is ultra processed foods are frequently food-like products that are just combining non-food calories together like sugar and oil. There's a bunch of foods that are basically just starch and oil, you know, like your your Doritos and your uh, all of these snack foods and junk foods are just basically sugar, oil, flour, starch, salt, seasoning. And they're really just ways to combine calories in a tasty fashion, hitting this sort of bliss point where you're just gonna automatically way overeat it. And so yes, most processed foods are bad, Processing is usually bad. And so it's very easy to just say, okay, processed food's bad. We're all just going to eat unprocessed food. But there are some processed <laughs> foods that are absolutely amazing. If you refine a food and just take out all the protein or the micronutrients, you could have a spectacular processed food. Yes, it's less common. Yes, you have to go out of your way to get these. 
But technically, I could live on processed foods that have a super high protein percent and a super low energy density, like uh, like uh, artificially sweetened, uh, fat-free Greek yogurt or something. I could eat these foods and choose these foods and have a really good outcome, uh, great health, great phenotype, great body composition. Um, there are also some natural unprocessed foods that probably wouldn't be optimum for health. If I just ate, you know, dates and honey or something like that, uh, that would probably not give me a, a optimum health or body composition. So there, you can kind of just roughly say um, unprocessed is good and processed is bad, but it's not really that easy. And there's a lot of shades of gray in between. And so it helps to know <laughs> what these factors are. So then you can actually eat processed food and unprocessed food and choose the best of both worlds. Uh, again, kind of like plants versus animals, you could actually have both and understand what these factors are and then choose food accordingly. Yeah, so um, which brings us to what I think is really interesting here because now we, we did a, a, a long walkthrough of uh, the problem and uh, why every diet kind of can work even though they're completely different. If you take this satiety per calorie lens, you kind of can explain all of them or you can make a mix of them. You can use it to um, eat whatever it is you like to eat, but in a slightly better way, perhaps. But there is a problem, I think uh, you may agree. Uh, it's just not very intuitive, this thing for people who have never heard of it. Like, how do you do it? Like, how do you, how do you look at the nutrition panel and uh, figure out the satiety per calorie? Can you do that? Or do you have to learn it specifically for every single food? Um, is there a helpful book or product or anything like what do you do if you're interested in this well so it, it is not intuitive to anyone like i really don't think people know how to do this without any kind of knowledge or information but you can absolutely learn this it's a skill you just learn how to uh read food labels and and look at what's in foods and you learn how to um kind of choose things that are a little bit higher in this or a little bit lower in that and this is something anyone could learn. And there are a couple directional steps you want to take with basically everything. You're trying to choose something that has a higher protein percent than something with a lower protein percent. You know what I mean? So if you're if you're if you're choosing like a yogurt, for example, you could look at the yogurts in the in the store and look at the nutrition label, and you can see how many grams of protein are per serving, and then how many calories are per serving. And you can just roughly ratio those in your mind. Like, okay, this one has 20 grams of protein for 200 calories. This one has five grams of protein for 300 calories. And that's going to be way worse for protein percent and type of calorie. Uh, then you can look at things like fiber. Okay, how many grams of fiber are there? And then how many grams of carbs total? So like your, you know, Ezekiel bread that has 25 grams of carbs per slice but six grams of fiber per slice, that's a pretty good ratio, you know, the uh, versus your Wonder Bread, which has, you know, 50 grams of carbs and zero grams of fiber. That's a horrible ratio. Um, you can also look at, you know, energy density. You look at the how many grams are in a serving and then how many calories are in that serving. So, you know, your um, your protein bar, uh, it's only 200 calories, but it's also only 50 grams. And so that's not a lot of weight and volume in your stomach. You're still hungry after you eat it. That's why you want to eat like five of those things versus your big tub of Greek yogurt. 200 calories could give you like a half a pound uh, 
or, you know, or a kilogram of, you know, Greek yogurt. That's a lot of weight and volume, a lot more fullness. And so if you just look for things like protein and calories and grams per serving and fiber and grams of fat and all these things, and then just substitute out anything you're eating that you could possibly get something that's either higher protein, higher fiber, or lower carbs or lower fat is always going to be a good substitution. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not intuitive. You have to mm, learn it. Exactly. It's hard. I mean, I think that's the problem, really, because I, I do think that most people listening will think that, yeah, this may make a lot of sense, more protein, fiber, etc., lower energy density, sure. But having to calculate calories per 100 grams of serving this and fiber per something and protein grams per this and that, I mean, if you if you look at it, uh, uh, like it's easy to say, don't eat carbs. Okay, that's pretty pretty easy to understand. Don't eat, car eat carbs. We kind of know what carbs are. They're you know they're pasta and bread. Okay, don't eat that. Or don't eat animals. Okay, that's pretty easy. We know which foods are coming from animals. That makes sense. But when we start talking about satiety per calorie, we're trying to take uh, sort of all these complexity and uh, build a structure around it. But that, that becomes really complex, I think, for people. So what can you do? I mean, it's terrible. You basically have to be a graduate degree level nutritionist to navigate <laughs> the grocery store. And people are not, right? And so of course, are, uh, we cut to, the, cut to the bottom line. I think yeah, we need, I think at least, uh, see what you say about it. We need a product for this. We need to be able to make it simple with our mobile phones. You know, some very, very simple thing to take all this complexity and put it into a microchip to do all those calculations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for us. So we don't have to do it. What do you think? Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And that, and that's what we're working on here is basically a way that this satiety per calorie concept is absolutely brilliant. Um, knowing how to raise it or lower it or what factors are involved is something everybody should know. This sh it should be a household term. It should be taught in grade school. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do is basically democratize this information with a tool that like explains it, shows you how it works, um, gives you some pointers, makes it easier and simpler. And so that you basically don't have to have a math degree, uh, an accounting degree, a uh, nutrition degree, and, um, and, you know, some sort of like, you know, calculator when you walk down the aisles in the grocery store. Yeah, so just making it much, much simpler. Because when, when you look at it now, when you try to explain this to your patients, how many people are you sort of, how is it working? So, and honestly, like my my whole job, my whole life is like trying to condense this information that people need to know into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller chunks of time because I have such little time at all these patient encounters. And I'm like, okay, how can I get it just as succinct as possible? Like what is the just the easiest, simplest thing? And to be honest, that's why low carb was uh, appealed to me so much for so long because it's just really easy and it always improves tidy calories. So it is like pressing the easy button. And so now yeah. that I'm trying to communicate all of this, it is a lot more difficult, but uh, it, it is something that um, I am able to do 
now and that people are successful with it. Um, although any tool that would help me out <laughs> would be much appreciated. Like so I think if there, if there was a tool that just made this simply just a button to press and you will know what you need to know, how, how helpful would that be? Uh, super helpful, honestly. And like, like I literally wrote the PE diet just to make my job easier. So I could just hand out free copies of it to everybody who walked in the door and be like, okay, look, protein's a big deal. Check it out. Try to raise the percent a little bit. And it's just such an instant win because it, it saves me so much time. So yeah, any tool that allows me to help people out with these food choices and explain these concepts, um, without me having to reinvent the wheel every single time with every patient, you know what I mean? It's just like amazing. Mm. And so I'm so excited about this. Yeah. Coming very soon. Probably when people listen to this podcast, it may even be available. Um, so I want to take a step back uh, because a lot of people may be hearing about this satiety per calorie concept for the first time. Did you invent it? No, no, absolutely not. So <clears throat> satiety per calorie is a term that is in the medical literature, and you can actually find this term in the medical and scientific literature. Um, uh, I actually, uh, a long, long predates me or anybody I know. So it's, it's not at all any invention of mine. Uh, but the concept of like combining all these things together into sort of like uh, uh, something to score. I mean, that was, that is a somewhat original idea. Even that has been uh, talked about in the scientific literature before. So it's not super original. I think what I'm doing is really just putting a practical spin on something that was known about, but really underappreciated and under, um, uh, underutilized. And like you, even if you search the medical literature for this phrase, you're only going to find, you know, a dozen entries or something like that. And so it, it really, it needs more airtime and it needs, um, uh, it needs to be more practical and more accessible and democratized. And that's, I think what I brought to this concept. Yeah, I, I agree. When, when was the first time, uh, or, mm, who's the first person to talk about satiety per calorie that you know of? Uh, I definitely saw Stefan Guionet use the phrase satiety per calorie in his amazing book, The Hungry Brain. It's like at the, on the last page or something like that. It's not it's not um, used a lot, but he absolutely used his phrase. And um, so he's the first person I know of to use that phrase like in popular media. So uh, when... Um... When you get criticism for this type of calorie concept or, or we get that, um, what's the main thing that people sort of use as an argument against this approach? It has the word calories in it. And so, which is ironic because like we're over here saying, uh, don't count calories, calories don't matter. You eat till you're full. Uh, but you are eating too many calories when you're insulin resistant and you have to somehow achieve the satiety while eating less calories. So we have satiety per calorie in the name, even though we don't care how many calories anyone eats. And so it's this weird dichotomy where um, some people are like, they hate the concept of calories because because it's true. No one can just say, okay, I'm going to eat half the calories I was eating before of the same food 
and I'll just lose weight. No, you're going to starve to death and die. I mean, it's going to be awful. You cannot sustain it. And so we're, we're on the same bandwagon as people who don't like the word calories. Like I don't like, I would never tell someone, okay, you're going to eat 2000 calories a day and it's just going to be Twinkies and whatever you're eating before. Uh, that's not going to work. That's terrible. That's the worst idea ever. And so I, I don't like the ca calorie concept. And at the same time, we need some way to look at the amount of um, basically food energy someone's ingesting. And uh, then this satiety for calorie has to have calories in the name. And so I get the pushback against the word calories. People are just um, allergic to this term in general. But uh, there's really, you have to take that into account. People don't like it. Uh, they don't want it to be about uh, energy balance. They want mm -hmm. it to be about hormones. What do you say about that? Well, so like, again, you've got the <clears throat> carbohydrate insulin model that's just hormones. You've got the energy balance model that's just energy. And satiety per calorie is this absolutely perfect marriage of both of them because it's all about hormones. Like all of your satiety is nothing but hormones. You're looking, well, not nothing but hormones, but hormones play a huge role. Like all of your incretins, your GLP-1 and your, um, you know, all these things that your intestinal tract emits to tell you when you've eaten enough. Hormones are absolutely massive. That is absolutely critical for giving you the satiety. But then calories are a real thing. Well, the calories aren't real, but you're ingesting carbons, chains of carbons with high energy bonds. And these carbons will only leave your body when you exhale them uh, after burning them. So they're stuck in your body forever until you burn them in your mitochondria and exhale the carbons as carbon dioxide. So this, the, ingesting these high energy carbons is a very real thing. And if you're not going to call them calories, you have to call them something. So it's absolutely critical that we have some sort of term for the amount of high energy carbon bonds that you're ingesting that you can only exhale out of your body. And that's like, uh, mm. that calories is just a very convenient term for it. Yeah. So uh, another objection I think uh, we hear is that this is, uh, this is just very unproven. There are no randomized controlled trials on this specific combination of various factors well that's so there there we need way more studies so there's not enough really good uh in you know long-term randomized controlled trials of all this diet stuff they, we just we need more studies i would love more studies the more studies the better bring it on this is great it's, they're just so expensive that you know the the greatest study that will tell us all the answers to diet is pretty much never gonna happen but we have tons of actual randomized controlled trials, human randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses for every single one of these directions, basically proving that they are effective, a higher protein percent, lower energy density, higher fiber, um, hedonic factors. These are all very strongly evidence-based, um, plenty of data to support them. We have less studies looking at combinations, but we still have studies looking at combinations as well. There are studies um, randomized controlled trials, looking at various combinations. You know, we have studies, for example, on Mediterranean diets and paleo diets, and you can see that what these diets are accomplishing is combining multiple factors in the satiety per calorie model. They might have slightly higher protein percent, slightly lower energy density, a little bit more fiber, and you can combine these and get these types of directional outcomes. And we do have some studies on it. We don't have like, you know, huge long-term amazing studies that would tell us 
exactly, you know, what, like every permutation and every combination, uh, we don't have that. Uh -huh. and that would be yeah. great. Good luck finding that. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, like you said, I mean, I, I think there's something to this that uh, there are all these kind of human randomized controlled trials of various kinds of diets, comparing them to each other, short term, long term, medium term, et cetera, et cetera. What this satiety per calorie model can allow us to do is actually to look at all these studies and see <coughs> how does it fit the predictions of the model? And if it doesn't, can we tweak the model to make it better uh, give, give an output that is more consistent with uh, what we know about the, the, the truth in the world, right? So right, exactly. Basically, other diets, if you will, low-carb diet, for example, they only look at low-carb diet studies, which there are a, a number of, obviously. Uh, but with this approach, we can actually look at all studies on various kinds of human diets and see how well does it predict the outcome and if not, can we make it better? Right. And, and what we're doing is just taking any study we can get that looks at these factors and then what the outcomes are and trying to extrapolate, you know, what what these combinations do and what um, the percentages of changes uh, lead to in terms of outcomes. Now, we, you know, the ultimate study, uh, hopefully soon Kevin Hall will have an infinite number of humans all locked up for an infinite length of time, <laughs> and he'll feed them infinitely gradated amounts of protein and fiber and energy density and carbon fats and every possible permutation in like a fifth dimensional matrix, uh, where we will absolutely know the very, very single best ratio of all of these and exactly what every little change does to every other little thing. Um, but that will cost an infinite amount of money and take an infinite amount of time. So I'm not going to hold my breath. In the meantime, we're using the studies we've got to like try to extrapolate. And yes, there is extrapolation going on here, but um, it, it's directionally, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, could you make a case that since, uh, since we're actually able to use all studies on human ad lib food intake, uh, to the extent that it's possible to do that in the best possible way, then that this approach may actually have the best, most evidence that you could have. I mean, if you can use all the best evidence that exists, doesn't the model become kind of more robust than any other model that only uses a subset of the data? I'm getting pretty geeky now. I know, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that what we do see in like the low fat or the low carb or the energy density camps is some cherry picking of uh, just one dimension of the data. And if you try to kind of look at um, all of these together as a whole and take meta-analyses of all of them and try to combine them all into one model, I do think that's probably going to be your best bet at explaining everything in the in the dice space, explaining all the outcomes in RCTs. And that's what we're trying to do is basically come up with something that pretty much includes everything and explains everything. And, um, you know, we sure we'd love more studies, more the better. This would be great. We're, uh, we can only use the data that we have and it, it would be nice to have even more, but yeah, it's as good as it's going to get with the current data. In my opinion, I'm highly biased, but yeah, yeah, super biased too. But I think there is something very interesting in, in the ability to use 
any new published research can be used to uh, check the predictions of our algorithm to see does it match or not and if not then we can potentially tweak it to see if it gives a better overall fit to all the available data all the available evidence it's like it's very attractive to me uh, right, right another thing uh, another thing is uh, another objection we sometimes get is that hey we're only showing the obvious here uh, we all not know that a, a donut is uh, not so good and you know vegetables are good so um what's your take on that that the satiety per calorie model becomes extremely obvious and sort of uh what you would expect sort of uh so i it, you know on on one level you could just be like okay everybody knows fruit and vegetables is good and donuts are bad but most of us aren't living in those extremes we're living in this place where okay everybody's eating bread daily you know a fair amount uh and there's a pretty wide variety of breads like you could have your wonder bread way down here with no fiber at all and have very little protein and uh then you could have some like you know ezekiel bread or some sort of sprouted grain um bread that is much much it could have you know half the energy density it could have triple the fiber it could have twice as much protein percent it could be there could be a very very big difference between these but it's all just bread. So it's like, okay, well, donuts are bad. Um, fruit is good. Uh, bread's bad. Vegetables are good. You know, you, uh, when you try to use these simple things, it doesn't really work with the foods that people are actually eating every day, all day, day in and day out. And people are eating bread. People are eating cereal. People are eating processed meat. And there's a very wide gap between something that's good and something that's bad i mean like you know look at like ground beef for example ground beef you're like okay ground beef well um if you're vegan ground beef's terrible you should just never eat it and if you're carnivore it's like oh just eat all the ground beef you want any ground beef is beef you eat it but if you actually look at like the cheapest ground beef in the store like a 70 30 a 70 percent you know lean 30 percent fat ground beef and actually run the numbers on the caloric density and the fat and the satiety per calorie score and the primary percent uh, versus like a 93% lean, 95% lean, 96 or 97% lean ground beef. It, they're like worlds apart. They're not even the same, not even remotely the same category of satiety per calorie or food. It's just absolutely huge. And like nobody knows that when they're just saying, oh yeah, meat's bad, plants are good or carbs are bad and, you know, fat is good. Or you just, you, you're missing out on this huge gray zone nuance, which is where everyone's actually living. Like people are eating ground beef and they, they can't use a simple heuristic like uh, meat's always bad and plants are always good because then you're just going to eat Wonder Bread. But then if you're like, oh, well, I just eat meat and you just buy the cheapest meat in the grocery store, the cheapest ground beef, you're probably going nowhere in terms of health and body composition. Well, you, you might actually, that would probably be a slight improvement over the standard American diet, even the fattiest meat. You can get. <laughs> but um, there are so many gradations there that it's kind of a big deal. And this is what. So what kind up. of benefit can you get from, from knowing about those gradations? Like if you, most of the time you pick something higher in the satiety per calorie scale, um, for these you know you, you still eat bread you still eat ground beef you still eat whatever it is but you choose versions that are a bit higher what kind of 
benefit could you get from that? Well, honestly, that's what I'm doing. So like I have, I don't have any huge, big diet thing where I'm like, I never eat carbs. I never eat plants. I never eat animal. I never, I am just making these tiny, boring, mundane, super microscopic substitutions all day, every day. And it's literally just a war of grams. Every meal I eat, I eat like 10 grams of carbs less than I did before and five grams of fat less than I did before. And I just iterate on that all day, every day, day in, day out. This tiny little war of grams where my protein's a few grams higher, my carbs and fats are a few grams lower, my fiber is a few grams higher. And it's this tiny, boring, non-sexy, mundane, itty-bitty substitutions all day, every day, and then just consistently doing that forever. And that has basically allowed me to basically achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for years now. And it really is not that dramatic. It's these little things. And it's uh, knowing these like substitutions and these satiety per calorie moves you can make uh, is such a big deal. And the amount of effort it takes to sustain it uh, is tiny. And the results you get on that investment is massive. So the return on investment of learning how to do this is just huge. And, uh, you know, the food I eat is delicious. I love it. It's great. It's not 10 out of 10 delicious. It's not the most decadent, succulent, restaurant quality loaded with sugar, fat and oil and salt. Um, but it's pretty good. And, and so and I think that is the magic of satiety per calorie. It's quite small and mundane and everyday foods, but you're just consistently making these small little changes, uh, just little swaps to your food and then sustaining it and being consistent. And uh, that's not really, you know, it's, it's not like as headline grabbing as I will never eat a plant again. Like that's just really dramatic. You know what I mean? And what we're doing is a lot more subtle. It's a lot more in between. Everything's a shade of gray and we're in the middle. Yeah, I mean, you share your pictures uh, on on Twitter or X uh, with all six packs and stuff. Um, so, do you think that uh, regular people eating like you did could uh, get similar results, or are you just uh, genetically sort of uh, blessed? So, everybody's like ability to get abs is you have a genetic bracket that you've inherited, and you cannot move that. This is you're you're living within this genetic bracketing. But you could be on the super, super high and good end of your genetic bracket or the super, super low end of your genetic bracket. And I've been on both sides of mine, so I know all about it. But um, what you can do is become the best version of yourself that's allowable within your genetic bracketing. Um, you know, it's like it would be like my basketball skills. I'm not going to grow taller, um, but I can get as good as I can get in my basketball bracket. <laughs> by just playing, you know, constantly for 10,000 hours. Um, it's the same thing. Like uh -huh. everyone can be the best version of themselves. There are genetic limitations. I'm never going to be uh, Mr. Olympia. You know, I'm uh, not going to, uh, there's a rigid ceiling to how thin I could get or how fat or how much muscle I could get. And that's true for everyone. So within your gender and your age and your genetic bracketing, you can be the best version of yourself. And that really is just iterating on diet and exercise and making it consistent. So how much uh, how much exercise do you do to be to stay stay fit and very lean? Well, it, my exercise is is just as small, targeted, high return on investment, and um, as the diet side, I'm just doing you know uh, you know maybe 
15, 20 minutes of uh, exercise a day, but it's super, super focused, high intensity cardio or high intensity resistance training. Uh, just as hard as I can go, I put the maximum tension in my muscles uh, and hold it there for as long as I can, push, pull legs. Very, very tiny um, dose, very, very tiny time investment, um, but it's super consistent and the intensity is very high. And then you get a really high return on investment. And you can do the same thing with your with your diet choices. You just have a, if you have a very focused direction to go, you can exert a little bit of energy there and get a huge return on investment. It's almost like a like a lever where you just a little bit of force here gives you like a massive change over here. And the exercise is the same way. Um, people who who just go from never running to running five minutes a day get this radically huge reduction in chronic disease, death of all causes, all cause mortality, uh, like literally going from zero running to five minutes a day is huge. It's massive. And the return on investment is incalculably large. And that's the kind of thing that I get excited about. It's like, okay, minimum time investment, uh, minimum effort, maximum reward. There's this sweet spot for this kind of Pareto principle, you know, 20% of effort gives you 80% of results thing for both diet and exercise. And yeah. it's like return on investment is, is everything. So uh, speaking of 80, 20 and, and uh, getting a lot of uh, return on investment, what's your best tip for diet tweaks that like stupid mistakes that people do that they could just fix and have a vast uh, improvement from? So like for anyone just walking in the door, at the clinic, the single biggest return on investment that any person walking to my clinic could ever make is just switching all their beverages to non-caloric, unless it's a protein shake. Unless you're drinking protein, if you just, all your beverages are either no calories or as low as you can get them, that's a massive return on investment because there's so many good diet sodas and low calorie beverages out there. There's basically no reason anybody has to be drinking a bunch of sugar calories, you know, every time they're thirsty. And so non-caloric beverages is the single biggest rock in the jar for your, just your average person um, who's trying to improve <clears throat> health and body composition. That's massive. The next one for me is, you know, protein percent, protein awareness, protein focus, right? If you, if all you did is say, okay, I'm going to eat. 30, 40 grams of protein in this meal. Um, and, and how am I going to do it? And just being aware of how many grams of protein you're eating and targeting it and front loading this protein is huge. That's a massive return on investment. And your you know, average person uh, is eating almost no protein for breakfast. I have so many patients. I'm like, okay, what did you have for breakfast? And it's just cereal and um, you know, it's oatmeal and it's, and they'll be like, well, I had an egg and I'm like, okay, that's six grams of protein. If it was an extra large <laughs> egg, congratulations. You need, you know, probably 40, 30, 40 grams. If you really want to get to the body composition you're looking for. So what should you have for breakfast then? Uh, what do you so have for breakfast? Low carb and low fat fermented dairy. I eat a ton of Greek yogurt and this is a processed food. I eat some highly processed Greek yogurt with a bunch of artificial sweeteners in it. And, uh, this is, uh, amazing satiety per calorie. So you, you get your, you know, light and fit Greek yogurt and the whole one kilogram that is only 400 calories and it's 
80, 85 grams of protein. Um, if you eat that, you're not hungry for the rest of your life. It's so filling and the calories are so low. And, uh, this is, this is a huge, I'm, uh, really into fermented low carbon, low fat dairy. So I like ultra filtered milk. That's low in carbon fats. I like whey powder. I like cottage cheese. I like, um, low fat cheese. I like, uh, low carbon, low fat Greek yogurt. I eat a lot of that. I also like, um, and pretty much any kind of meat, but every time I buy it, I'm getting the leanest thing I can get. I'm getting the, the lean, extra lean ground beef. I'm getting, you know, just basically protein choices. I'm trying to keep the fat grams as, as low as I can reasonably find, you know, and there, and, and you can't go to zero. So I couldn't live on just boiled skinless chicken breast. I, you know, you have to eat some fat. You want to eat some fat. You need to eat some fat. But um, you could get a little bit lower fat than a lot. Like if you just eat bacon and the cheapest ground beef you can buy, uh, that's probably not going to get me to where I want to be. So if I choose something that's lower in fat, that's going to be better. And so like breakfast for me is like eggs and uh, uh, something a little bit leaner than bacon, turkey bacon, Canadian bacon, ham, Um you know, I'm eating, um, I'm always targeting the protein first. I'm aware of how many grams of protein is in my food. And then I'm just trying to substitute something out that has higher protein, lower fat, lower carbs, that kind of thing. Yeah, makes sense. So, um, mm, what if, if people started doing this, uh, eating higher protein, higher satiety foods in general, what's the potential? Like what, what could happen in the world? Well, uh, it's, it's fairly slow. So you have to, you have to do it for a long time. Like, um, if you just say, okay, I'm going to fast for a month, you're going to lose weight a lot faster, but half of what you lose is lean mass. And then you're just going to immediately yo-yo right back up to where you were. So you have to be very patient and very consistent and you have to realize, okay, I'm not going to get to my goal. It's going to take me three years to get to where I want to be. Uh, it'll take, I could maybe get halfway there in a year because it's a little faster up front, but nothing's going to happen the first day. Nothing's going to happen the first week. Nothing's going to happen the first month. And it takes a really long time, which is why people give up. It's just like resistance training. Everyone goes to gym, lifts weight. Uh, nothing happened. They don't look any better. You know, they didn't get any muscle. So they kind of give up. But if you could like fast forward yourself a year down the road of just consistently working out even twice a week, full body, uh, optimum resistance training, uh, you're so blown away at the change in your physique, in your body composition, that of course you would do that. Of course you would put in the time, but everybody gives up because they don't get this like immediate reward the way you do when you, you know, drink a Trente Frappuccino at Starbucks, it's like rewarding instantly versus, you know, working out every two, twice a week for a year is not instantly rewarding. So, but to answer your question, what would happen if everybody said, okay, I'm going to make these little changes and I'm just going to do it, you know, not for a week, not for a month, not for a cleanse, not for a boot camp, but for freaking ever. This is just what I do now. I just buy the leaner protein. I buy the higher fiber. I buy the lower carb. And that's just what I do. Um, everyone would slowly go from gaining a pound a year and ending up 30 pounds overweight to just losing uh, every year and ending up somewhere close to optimal body composition. Well, you'd have to be exercising as well to get to optimal body composition. But this would basically just reverse the entire 
obesity trend. The obesity epidemic would just completely collapse. So that, that's pretty massive for health and well-being and even the state of, I don't know, national security, like uh, state of the armed forces, uh, um, the cost of healthcare. Um, I mean, it would be like a transformation for the nation. I think it's fair to say it would be the biggest deal of all, the biggest possible thing that could happen. So what's uh, what's sort of stopping that from happening? Obviously, um, it's not happening. Uh, well, I, and I think there's like, there's a lot of good information out there, but there's so much people don't know, you know, what's true, what's not true, or what directions to go, or what's important, what's not important. And I think this satiety per calorie concept has the potential to uh, punch a signal through a whole hell of a lot of noise, if you know what I mean, and to really kind of cut a wide swath of actual practical, actionable, useful information right through the giant cloud of like carbs versus fat and plants versus animals. And, um, you know, I, I really think that... Um, it could appeal to a lot of people. It could make practical sense to a lot of people. It could be implemented by a lot of people. And it could really be a meta concept that kind of everyone could agree upon, whether they were vegan, carnivore, low carb, low fat, or somewhere in between like most people. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think it's, it has the potential to be a very big deal. So if people want to get uh, started trying this or, or just exploring it, what can I, what can they do? <laughs> Well, of course, you know, uh, at Hava, uh, we are trying to build an amazing app that's going to not only explain the concept and help people know what it is and how to do it, but just make it super accessible and super convenient and super fun. And uh, right now you can go to Hava.co and uh, learn more about it and sign up for it. And hopefully we'll be releasing an app soon that will just help bring this concept and this idea um, to the mainstream. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, Hava.co. Um, yeah, working hard on it. It's been fun, uh, fun working on it with you. Uh, what are you most excited about in the future, in the near future here? Well, what, okay, what we're doing. I have, I've. It's been so great working with you and everybody over there at Diet Doctor or Hava. Um, it's just been a lot of fun. I'm very passionate about it. Um, of course I'm biased, but I think it's a cool concept has a lot of potential. People need to know about this one way or the other. And I'm just excited to build an app that I personally want to use. Like I want to use this because I think it's cool and helpful and awesome. And let's face it every day, all day, day in, day out, everyone on earth has to think about what am I going to eat? You know, it's like food choice is something you're going to do every day forever and you're always going to be like what's for what's for lunch what am i eating i have to eat it's time to eat what am i going to eat and because it's such an integral part of everyone's day everywhere all the time forever and because it has such a big effect on health in this slow gradual iterative process over time uh i think it has the potential to just help everybody out like what am i going to eat you know what would be uh like a tasty recipe or a food swap that's slightly higher in satiety per calorie, but still delicious and awesome and sustainable. And I, I, I want to build something that helps people know what they should eat, why they should make these substitutions, 
and then help them kind of keep track of like, okay, here's where you're at. Here's where you could be. These are little things you could do. These are, um, you know, some recipes that might help you some, um, you know, some helpful little hints and tips and tricks. And, 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 uh, you know, eventually I think that once you learn this, you don't actually necessarily need any app or any tracking or anything, but it's really, really helpful to have something like this to explain it to people and get them on board and get them up to speed as fast as possible. You know what I mean? With potentially life-changing concepts and information. Cool. So, uh, apart from the stuff that we're building, anything else like this in the world today? Not exactly. Well, you know, uh, I mean, I wrote a book called the PE diet, which was an attempt to like, look at the single biggest rock in the jar, which is protein percent. And it's pretty good. But then there are like tons of black swans to the PE diet. Like what about, you know, the Okinawa ones eating nine, 10, 11% protein and still having good outcomes because they're leveraging energy density and fiber and these other pillars of satiety per calorie. So, so even that is just like, not as helpful and not as universal and not as explanatory as tidy calories. So I can't really think of anything else that's quite this, um, quite the, quite this all encompassing. Like the, I think this is potentially one of the most important meta concepts in all of nutrition. And I don't know anybody else who's trying to do it the same way. And so, yeah, no, I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, the same way it's um it's very exciting to see where this goes because i, I do think that uh, this might be sort of the general direction for the future and uh we'll see whoever else comes in and and uh, tries to do something similar potentially uh but right now it seems like we're first building this and i'm very very excited like you said uh, this is an app that i want to use regularly to up my game and mm -hmm. track how I'm doing and do a little bit better and just be a better version of, of myself and uh, have some fun while, while doing it. Absolutely. So very cool things coming. Uh, thanks for all the fun working together. People want to find you online. I know you're, you're active here and there. How can they find you? All right. You can find me at, uh, uh, anywhere on the social media at Ted Naiman. Uh, I'm on X at Ted Naiman. I'm on Instagram at Ted Naiman. You can go to tednaiman.com. Um, so just pretty much uh, Ted Naiman on the socials. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Oh, no, thank you. Congratulations it's... on being the first one on the Hava podcast. Hopefully <laughs> <minutes come. laughs> Excellent. I appreciate it. <laughs>